Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. Thank you, Scotty. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Becky Quick. Here's what's ahead. The president tries to ease geopolitical tension, saying Iran appears to be standing down. We are following all the developments. Plus, stocks moving higher despite any uncertainty out there. The Nasdaq and the S&P at all-time highs today. So can anything really hold back this rally? And then the great defense. Carlos Ghosn gives a very candid and very long news conference, vowing to clear his name. Can he do that after fleeing the charges that he was facing in Japan? Before all that, though, let's focus in on the markets. We do that with Seema Modi. And Seema, I would not have believed this last night when you saw the futures down by 400 points. The reversal we've seen today has been huge. Yeah, it's commendable, really, the intraday reversal for the market. And those comments from President Trump, Becky, really moving the market. He said that Iran appears to be standing down after its missile attack in Iraq last night. It is those comments sending the Dow to, uh, is up about 205 points after being down as much as 400 points in pre-market, a record high for the S&P and Nasdaq at this hour. Take a look at the story in the energy market. Oil prices initially broke above $71 a barrel following the attack. But as you can see here, uh, falling here, now down nearly 4% as those concerns ease up over a possible disruption in the energy market. And on that note, energy producers that many analysts were saying stand to benefit if there was a disruption in the, in the transportation of oil. Marathon, Hess and Pioneer all trading down as we watch oil prices move lower here. Becky, back to you. All right, Sina, thank you very much. We begin with a Middle East crisis that appears to be pulling back from the brink. Overnight, Iran launched more than a dozen missiles at military bases housing U.S. troops in Iraq. Markets initially tanked on that news, but then recovered after Iran's foreign minister tweeted that the country was not seeking escalation or war. The rally picked up steam after the president uh, addressed the nation here. He, too, eased some fears of further escalation. Eamon Javers is live at the White House. He's got the latest on this, and Eamon, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, Becky. One piece of information we're just getting in is that the White House now confirming the president spoke to Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom uh, today by telephone. Not a whole lot of detail here from the White House about what they discussed other than the Middle East broadly, but you can presume that last night's military action in, by Iran uh, was top of the list. And of course, we saw the president mentioning the UK, specifically hoping that the UK backs his approach to the Iranian nuclear deal going forward. And also the president requesting in his remarks here at the White House just a short time ago uh, that American allies back him up in terms of NATO participation in an anti-Iranian effort. Not clear exactly what the president wants, but the one thing we did see from the president here at the White House, as I say just a short time ago, is an emphasis on economic solutions here, not necessarily military ones. Here's what the president said. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. 
Now, Becky, clearly the United States already has punishing sanctions in place on the Iranians. That's part of what's driving uh, the Iranian government calculus in, in all of this is how to get those sanctions lifted or at least eased in the short term. So I've asked the White House and the Treasury Department for details on what exactly it is that they're going to be sanctioning, given the high level of sanctions already in place. They say uh, they may have additional details later this afternoon. As soon as we have those, we'll get them over to you, Becky. All right, Eamon, thank you. We look forward to hearing more on that. In the meantime, will this sense of de-escalation last, or is this just the calm before the storm? Let's bring in Michael O'Hanlon. He's Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. And Paul Salem, who is President at the Middle East Institute. Gentlemen, good to see both of you. Um, let's look through what the President had to say today. There was something for everybody in there. He said, I'll never allow Iran to have nukes. Punishing sanctions are coming. We've got the best weapons, but we don't want to use them and we want you to prosper. Michael, what's the important message? What did you take away from all of this? Overall, Becky, I certainly liked the message compared to what it might otherwise have been. And I think it was the logical message when Iran signaled that it didn't want escalation itself by probably deliberately missing any targets yesterday that would have caused civilian or military casualties. So I think that it's the logical next step. Uh, and as you and Eamon just discussed, in terms of additional sanctions, I think that's more for show and rhetoric than anything else. There aren't that many more ways we, the United States, really can sanction Iran's economy, at least not that I can think of. We have such comprehensive, comprehensive sanctions already. So I saw this as uh, about the kind of speech you would expect and hope for. It still leaves the question of what's the end game? How do we finally get out of this confrontation with Iran uh, at a time when our demands have become so maximal and our constriction of their economy so severe? But for the short term, tactically, I think it's a de-escalation and a welcome one. Well, Paul, let's give you the difficult question. How do we get out of this eventually? This is a short-term de-escalation. What's the longer term? Well, first of all, we don't know if this is a longer-term de-escalation. To keep in mind, it's important to know that if Iran really intends to escalate against the U.S. Uh, in Iraq or in other arenas, it would logically want to signal de-escalation first. That's in order to cool down President Trump uh, and minimize U.S. attention on what they're doing and, and uh, try to minimize a massive response. Secondly, they definitely want to reestablish plausible deniability so that if they do something in the weeks or months ahead and they will do it through proxy forces, they will say, we did our bit, you know, if, you know, previously and this is not us. So it's hard to read exactly what's going on. To my mind, the Iranians still have two clear goals. Uh, they don't really uh, pursue their emotions. They pursue their interests. And I think they have two clear ones. One is they're continuing to try to push the U.S. out of Iraq. Uh, that is a very critical play. They're using their political leverage, and they will up the security uh, leverage through their proxies as well. And secondly, uh, they have an interest in not uh, uh, helping Trump get reelected. Hmm. Uh, that might be, as they've warned in previous days, attacks on embassies or bases elsewhere in the region or indeed in the world to give President Trump uh, several Benghazis to deal with. So it's hard to say where we are. I think uh, President Trump made the, the, the very correct statements. He's trying to de-escalate from his end. I think it's urgent that the U.S. engage right away with the Iraqi government, Iraqi prime minister, because while killing Soleimani, we also greatly weakened our hand inside Iraq with the government and a part of public opinion. And we don't want, as a result of the killing of Soleimani, to be driven uh, out of Iraq. 
You know, Michael, that's a, a frightening thought. Are we looking at this too quickly and thinking that uh, the de-escalation is here? The markets are up pretty significantly on this, but do you think that this is a, more of a head fake and then the Iraqis have more planned? Or the Ira- yeah, I Iranians? I see no reason for the markets to be happy. I mean, a, a sigh of relief is different from a celebration. I think that Paul's 100 percent right, and I would add a third Iranian objective, which is somehow escaping the sanctions mm-hmm. that have been applied uh, so mercilessly by President Trump. And, you know, quite effectively, I think Iran's GDP shrank 7 percent last year, if my latest information is correct. So there has to be some kind of an end game there, too. Uh, and probably the Iranian hope is that a Democrat would defeat President Trump in November and be more amenable either to rejoining the 2015 nuclear deal or to negotiating a sort of mild change in that agreement without invoking all the other requirements that Secretary Pompeo and President Trump have imposed on Iran if they ever want to sort of be reacquainted with the community of nations. So uh, in the short term, the Iraqi government and our presence there is crucial, uh, the relationship with the Iraqis. I think we have to have a quiet dialogue, a friendly dialogue with them about the kind of U.S. military posture in Iraq that could still be in both countries' interests. And so far, the Mm -hmm. president is off to a very bad start on that. All right, gentlemen, thank you both very much. Michael O'Hanlon and Paul Salem. We've got a news alert in the bond market right now. Ten-year notes up for auction. Rick Santelli's tracking the auction at the CME. And uh, Rick, what are you seeing? What's demand? You know, demand is straight up one Eastern, C minus, Charlie minus. Let's go through it. 24 billion reopened tens. Really, it's nine year, 10 month. It's the second edition to an issue that was primary issued in November. 1.869 was the yield at the Dutch auction. 1.86 was the high in the one issued market right up to the end. Higher yield, lower price right there. It definitely loses some markings with respect to its grade. 2.45 bid to cover about average. 55.2 on indirects, the weakest since May. 16.1, the one bright spot on direct bidders, and that was the second best of 2019. Uh, including, of course, this auction today. Uh, 28.7 is the percent primary dealers take. But considering the volatility and the fact that 170 yield was the low last night during a volatility period, uh, it really wasn't a bad auction. Probably could have been even a little sloppier. Tomorrow will be 30 years, finishing off $78 billion in total supply. Becky, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. You know, you can call it the sigh of relief rally. The market shrugging off any geopolitical risks with stocks rallying today. Check it out. The S&P and the Nasdaq hitting all-time highs. The Dow is now up by almost, 100 po- almost 200 points, and that comes even when you've got Walgreens and Boeing. Big losses there, shaving about 55 points off of the Dow. But are investors being too complacent here? Is there still real risk out there? Let's try and get some answers from Nancy Tangler. She is chief investment officer at Laffler Tangler Investments. Also, Brian Belsky, who is chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. This is not the day I thought we'd be seeing today based on the actions of last night. You two caught off guard by this, too? What do you think, Brian? Oh, well, hi. <laughs> hi. Um, you first. Um, no, I'm not. Uh, and the reason is, is that, uh, Becky, our theme all along from a fundamental perspective is that U.S. is a home for stability. Okay. And I think the academics have it wrong again. You know, academically, you'd say be buying bonds and buying gold and buying oil and all this. 
we've had the oil recovery in December. Now we're selling off a little bit because oil, oil went up a little bit too much. Gold's it's not bounced a lot, though. I mean, you're talking about the lowest price mm-hmm. we've seen in a month. Almost. However, a month. But if you take a look at the last several years, oil's been in a big trading range, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the fundamentals of oil are still very much in place, meaning a lot of supply. The key thing is that stability from a fundamental perspective in terms of earnings remain the strongest in the world here in the United States. But most importantly, think about this in terms of perspective on a short-term point. This is day three of, tr- of trading, really, in, two- in 2020, right? Uh, the adults are back working and after, after last weekend when it was really working. And so the U.S. outperformed dramatically the rest of the world, the majority of the rest of the world. Global allocators were misallocated last year and didn't own enough U.S. stocks. And now you're starting to see the money flow come back in. I think that has a lot to do with it. Nobody's really talking about it because we're so focused on headlines right now. But the key thing is that U.S. provides stability and that trend's going to continue. Although, Nancy, you've been long the stock market for a long time. You do have some concerns that we're due for a pullback at this point. I I think we are. I mean, I think this is that things have to get worse before they get better market. Uh, We need a correction. I hate saying that out loud, but we do. We need to see some pruning. And then I think we get another leg. I do do think this is much more analogous to the 90s than it is uh, to the 2000s. And I think we have a lot of room to run even still for many of the reasons Brian already mentioned. But but additionally, the U.S. consumer, the jobs uh, environment is healthy. Oil is range bound. We're now going to be energy independent in 2020. So that that supply keeps the prices within a range that that is good for the consumer. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see a resurgent in CapEx spending. Brian, you are not in a position where you think any of those trades, the traditional playbook we would think we'd be playing, would be working today. But what is working? What are you buying? Well, we're overweight financials, communication services, uh, discretionary, um, and tech. And so if you think about it, three out of those uh, four sectors are really centered toward the consumer. The consumer is the strength of the economy, and that's not going to change. We don't see that. Now, Per, per the point that was made is that this year's return structure is going to be very different than last year, right? And if you go back to the 90s, we wrote last year early that we thought 2019 was going to be this generation's 1995. That yep. panned out. And we think, though, the next couple of years are going to be a little bit dicier because we actually are going to see, I think, CapEx growth. We are going to see GDP growth a little bit stronger than most people think. Then we get some sort of a correction. And then the last leg of our 20-year bull market call that we made a number of years ago will come in. So I still think that people are massively underweight U.S. stocks, Becky. And I think that you want to be in those areas with cash and that are t- centered toward the consumer and still in financials. Nancy, you have the most interesting bold move that I've seen all day. Uh, you've been buying shares of Boeing over yes. the last few weeks. Yes. What made you make that decision? And what do you think, just given the headlines today? So if you looked at the headlines, you would say Boeing sh- which should be a $200 stock. Um, but the moat is very big around that company. And we In actually... Terms of there not being too many alternatives. And right. if, you're, if you've bought a lot of Boeing planes, you're going to continue to buy Boeing yep. planes? and the, the backlog. And so we think they'll fix the MAX problem. I think uh, the new CEO is coming in and doing... Uh, I mean, he hasn't officially started, but you can see his fingerprints Calhoun, on, right. on what has been going on. I think they're doing the right things. Um, you know, unfortunately, Muhlenberg just didn't manage the crisis well, and he allowed it, it to get away from him, and that for to morph into something even bigger. So we think three years from now, if you've been accumulating stock here, they will start growing the dividend again uh, once they get through the cost structure issues. We think you'll be really happy you own Boeing. All right. Nancy, Brian, good to see both of you. Thank you. All right. Here's what else is ahead on the exchange today. Coming up, former auto executive Carlos Ghosn speaks out very candidly. 
we'll look at what his chances are of coming out the winner in this international chase. Plus, there's a new player in the Meatless Wars, and it's coming into the game in full force with 50 new products. And the latest on the deadly Boeing crash overnight in Iran. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on oil prices right now. Sitting at session lows, you're looking at uh, WTI down by about five and a quarter percent. Kind of shocking given what's been happening in the Middle East. But the premium that had kind of built in over several days coming back out and WTI below $60 a barrel. Also, a Boeing 737 passenger plane bound for Ukraine crashed in Iran last night, just minutes after takeoff, killing all 176 people on board. That plane was operated by Ukraine International Airlines, and it released a statement earlier today saying, given the crew's experience, error probability is minimal. Joining us right now with more on this is CNBC.com Airlines reporter Leslie Josephs. And Leslie, this is uh, one we've all been watching so closely today. Obviously a horrible story. So much confusion and the idea that it was happening just hours after the missiles had been launched from Tehran into uh, Iraq. Just a lot of things to kind of put together. Yeah, it's a lot to put together. It's lots to put together also with Boeing. And one thing to really emphasize is that, that this was not a MAX plane. Those planes, of course, have been grounded since March of last year. Um, so this was not a MAX. Um, however, this was a very new aircraft. This was about three years old. This airline has a pretty good safety record. Um, so so that's uh, kind of odd, although things can happen. Um, and there's still a lot that we don't know. But the pilots that I've talked to said that it's very strange that it would suddenly lose communication. Um, state news agencies were talking about engine failure. Pilots are highly trained. This is a very experienced crew. To come in and not be able to sort of navigate your way out of that is, is very rare. Um, and then just the abrupt nature in, in which it happened just it seems a little bit strange. But it is yes, very it early. It fine in the beginning. It right. Like it was, taking and it was a perfectly. normal altitude, about 2,400 meters, two minutes after takeoff. That, that's pretty normal. And uh, pilots are kind of the ones I spoke to are a little bit confused at that, uh, that you'd suddenly lose contact. Because even if you have engine failure and then you start to descend, you'd still be transmitting data. Um, and that suddenly stopped. And, that, and that's a little bit strange. Now, Iran has said that they've recovered the black box, but they will not be sharing, at least according to reports, they will be not be sharing that box or that information with either American authorities or Boeing. Yeah, so that further complicates things. Under international law for aviation, the country in which the accident occurred or the incident occurred, um, they're the ones who are going to be investigating it. And just given what relations are now with the U.S., uh, they seem to be, like you said, frozen out. I want to thank you very much for joining us. It's good to see you, Leslie. Thank you. Thanks. When we come back, the meatless mania continues with a new player entering the game. The stock's been on a run in the last three months, so can this move keep the momentum going? We've got the name and a debate straight ahead. Plus, a new report shedding some light on some serious security flaws within popular video sharing app TikTok. We have the details coming up. The exchange will be back in two minutes. Deeper data at CNBC. 
November global air freight demand fell 1.1% from year-ago levels. It was the 13th consecutive month of year-over-year declines. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get you caught up with some of the movers this hour. Shares of Smile Direct Club up 10%. The company announcing its first Asia location with an expansion into Hong Kong. This follows news on Monday that Smile Direct Club will be offering its products at Walmart. And shares of Lennar had been up as much as 5%. Now they're higher by about 1% after beating on the top and the bottom line. New orders were up 23% on both a dollar and a volume basis compared to a year ago. Also, shares of Luck and Coffee up more than 8% today as the company expands its footprint in China with vending machines, further increasing its dominance over Starbucks in that country. A nice recovery for the stock from yesterday when it fell on a secondary offering of 12 million American depository shares. Let's get over to Sue Herrera. She's got a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Becky. Great to see you. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Pope Francis asking for prayers as firefighters battle Australia's deadly wildfires. It came during an unscripted moment with his congregation in Vatican City. The fires in Australia have killed 26 people and destroyed 2,000 homes. Record heat and drought are fueling the flames. Washington state is having the opposite problem. Too much rain is creating mudslides in the western portion of that state. The mudslides are damaging roads and making them impassable. Harvey Weinstein back in court for day two of jury selection. If the 67-year-old former movie producer is convicted of sexual misconduct and rape, he could get life in prison. And progress on the fight against cancer. The American Cancer Society is reporting the largest one-year drop in the death rate on record. It fell 2.2% from 2016 to 2017 versus the average rate of about 1.5%. Researchers are citing cancer treatment advancements and also better diagnostic scanning for the decline. A little bit of good news, Becky, to end the news update. Back to you. You know, that's the best news I've heard all day, so we'll take it. Thank you, Sue Herrera. All right, folks, here's what else is coming up today on The Exchange. Ahead. It was the miracle on 34th Street from Macy's during the holidays. Meatless mania continues as Kroger jumps into the game. The stars are aligning for Constellation Brands. And media mogul Jeff Katzenberg on his new venture. It's all coming up on The Exchange.
All right, here we go. It's time for Rapid Fire. We're going to get you caught up in a few stories that should be on your radar. Joining us to break down the headlines, Robert Frank, Kate Rogers, and Frank Holland. Good to see you guys. Ready to go? Yep. All right. (laughs) First up, not much of a holiday miracle for Macy's today. The retailer actually saw same-store sales decline by 0.6% during the holiday season. And yet, that is not, that's good enough for Wall Street, especially since analysts expected sales to drop by much, much more. The company also announcing a spate of store closures. The stock kind of bouncing around today. Right now, it's up by 2.5%. The share is getting a small boost, but off of session highs. That stock down nearly 42% over the last 12 months. This was a rough year for the retailers. They knew they were going to have a shorter calendar, but especially for the mall-based retailers and especially the department stores within that. What it's do you like think? Only in this retail environment or is a sales decline of 0.6% great news for yeah. Macy's. I mean, I was at uh, Target on Black Friday, which is obviously a very different type of retailer, but I'll have to say, I mean, even in that store, there weren't a ton of people in there shopping. It's just like the entire landscape has completely shifted. These big box, or the mall retailers, rather, are forced to have to do all these steep discounts. Although, I have to working? say, Black Friday is not the measure that it used yeah. to be. Of because course, now they yeah. open up on Thanksgiving. Yeah. They run all the way through. It's not this time. You, you don't see it anymore where people are rushing in the doors trying to Kate makes it. an important point. We're looking at the top line, yeah. lack of disappointment, but the bottom line is going to really be where it hurts because you saw all the discounting. Right. I mean, yeah. I was at a mall in Florida and there was like racks of 40 to 60 percent off right after Christmas and it was just tons of this stuff. And so what the margin looks like at the end of the quarter, that's going to be the question for Macy's. Plus, They've still got over 680 stores after closing 28 and one Bloomingdale. So I think they're still way over store. Incredible shrinking store. Yeah. Front yeah kind of a double pronged issue. Number one, shorter window between Thanksgiving or Black Friday yeah. and Christmas this year. So people have less time to shop. Also, we're all kind of enamored by e-commerce. But I actually got a great stat from CBRE. 85% of the people shopping in malls this holiday season, they were Gen Z. And apparently Gen Z people, they like to go to the mall. Yeah. And so there, there is some hope going so, forward. <laughs> Matt, mall rats are back? Are you kidding me? I thought we were done with that for good. Well, apparently not. And I think a lot of stores are actually gearing the, their sales towards people buying online and actually picking up in the store. You get that second bite of the apple, potentially. That was going on at Target. I mean, they I think they doubled the amount of people they had working in fulfillment this year. Well, they've because, done a great job. Yeah, because they know everyone's ordering online and picking up. And that was a really busy part of the store. So it's just interesting. To Target see and Walmart both shift. really have owned that space. Yeah. All right, next up, Kroger is doubling down on meatless mania. The supermarket operator is launching a private label plant-based meat line. It plans to offer 50 new products under its Simple Truth Emerge brand. This comes as Beyond Meat McDonald's announced that they're going to be expanding the PLT burger. And according to Reuters, Impossible Foods has stepped away from a coveted deal to supply the fast food giant. Kate, this is your wheelhouse. PLT, plant lettuce and tomato, that's that's what we're talking about? Yes. And so the big question for me watching this space is when does McDonald's get in on this in a really big way? And which company does it team up with? Because it's going to have to have a huge supply chain to be able to service McDonald's more than 14,000 U.S.-based stores. So they're doing this test in Canada. Uh, You know, Impossible works with Burger King. They have half the amount of locations that McDonald's has in the United States. And what happened with Reuters yesterday is interesting. The story comes out that says that Impossible's kind of backed away from talks with McDonald's. Then they, they put out a put statement. It, they're backing away from the backing away. Yeah, right? and they're saying, listen, we're open to talking to any potential future partners at any time. But their CEO, Pat Brown, said it would be silly for us to try and go after McDonald's right now because we don't have the supply chain. So, you know, these wars are going to continue to go on beyond analysts say is the better position company to work with McDonald's on a big rollout. And it's interesting they're having production problems keeping up with the demand, given that my fear going into this whole craze over fake meat was 
is this really a commodity business? I mean, how do, you, how do you decommoditize a business where Tyson Foods is in it, Nestle's yeah. coming in it, Kroger's in it, all these Albertsons in it, all these people are coming in, Whole Foods already has products out there. How can you say we're impossible, we're beyond, therefore we're different from all the other cheaper products The demand out there. has been amazing. It is. It's, it's been something to kind of watch and go through with it. Demand's amazing, and also the investor interest is amazing. This has been one of the best IPOs of 2019. I was actually there with the CEO, and he talked about he hoped that shareholders would become people that bought the products, and people that bought the products would become shareholders. <laughs> so from that first day, I think that you might have had a sign that maybe this could take off, but my, my thing is, General Mills is actually an early investor into beyond. So they have the capacity. They have the supply chain. So once you saw this starting to take off, why not partner with them? And now they're kind of at a crossroads where they could have a great partnership with McDonald's, but they just don't have the capacity. Yeah. One more thought. All of this buzz, it just creates excitement about if and when this happens, yeah. right? So if they go full scale right away with every restaurant company that wants to work with them, that kind of, you know, deflates their own hype, I think, in some way, yeah. too. So I think the supply chain right. matters, but I also think, you know, they're strategic. They yeah. know what they're doing. I just want to know how they come up with 50 new products. Are you kidding me? That's like oh, Bubba, the Bubba Gump. Yeah, what, what is in it? What does that taste like? <laughs> I have no shrimp. idea. Yeah. <laughs> all right, after all that talk about alternative meat, maybe a beer. Shares of Constellation Brands bubbling up just over 3% after the company reported a beat on its top and its bottom lines, and it was raising its full-year guidance for 2020. Check out the stock today. It's about 4.4% increase. Beer sales actually popped more than 8% thanks to the brewer's robust portfolio, but other divisions lagged. Frank, this reminds me of the mall story you just talked about. I thought beer was a declining asset and that millennials right. didn't want to drink these beers. Not yeah, the case? I think that's the, the overall thought there, but... You know, Corona is actually a very popular brand. So is Modelo. Modelo is actually on pace to be the fourth most popular beer brand in the U.S. So right there, they have really strong fundamentals in their core business. But I think you also have to look at Constellation as a growth business. They're deeply invested in cannabis. And you have to decide whether you think cannabis is at its lows or quote-unquote highs. Um, just uh-huh. no pun intended. Uh-huh. Um, but they also have a deal to, to acquire a smaller cap uh, producer based in the U.S., I'm not going to name it because it's such a small cap, but they already have a vertical integration in place. Once U.S. legalization happens or if it happens, they have the right to buy this other producer. So they'll be able to just step right into the U.S. market. Also, they're stepping into seltzer, which grew 200 percent last year. They're going to call it Corona Seltzer. So people are going to see Corona beer, Corona Seltzer. They're calling, they're it, Corona they're seltzer? calling it Corona Seltzer? That, wait, that there's no me. alcohol in it, though? No, there's no, absolutely no alcohol. Oh, it's hard seltzer. seltzer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that, yeah, to yeah. Me, so that's, hard seltzer grew 200 percent. That, to like, me, is yeah. stupid, though. You have a chance to, to create a brand new, I mean, all these brand new seltzer brands, and then call it a beer brand. I mean, this is exactly the consumer that's buying spiked seltzers getting away from beer, right. and then you're calling it Corona. That seems to be a But isn't it kind of a stigma of hard seltzer? I mean, that's right. I feel like people are kind of turned off by the idea of drinking hard seltzer, even if they enjoy the taste of hard seltzer. Yeah, I uh, avoided that whole trend this summer. Stick with my rosé. <laughs> Perfect example. By the way, we should mention Constellation brand CEO Bill Newland's going to be sitting down with Jim Cramer tonight. You can tune into Mad Money at 6 p.m. to watch that. And guys, I'm going to call an audible here on Rapid Fire and change up our last topic. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk Grubhub instead of TikTok because Grubhub shares, if you've been watching this today, that stock is surging right now on a report that the company has hired financial advisors to explore strategic options, including a possible sale. Check it out. Grubhub shares up by 17% today, but they're still down about 30% for the year. Shares of Uber are also moving higher on this news. Investors may be betting on consolidation in the food delivery industry. What do you think, guys? I mean, the, the Uber move was really interesting. Yeah. We were right. watching this happen. They got basically a 5% pop almost 
as this news came like out. Maybe about they Carmel. will get crushed by competition. If yeah, exactly. There are so many. We talk about this all the time. So many players in this space. Uh, the competition is hurting all of the delivery companies. It's also hurting some of the food carriers that are working with these because, you know, right. you used to be able to just get pizza delivered. Now you can get everything delivered. What is interesting is that I have heard from Rich Allison, the CEO of Domino's, obviously, that he thinks some type of you know reckoning of sorts is going to come to this industry uh, because there are just too many players uh, and they're losing a lot of money. It's not sustainable. Uh, we also heard from the Chipotle CEO, Brian Nichols, saying that he thinks the most profitable players will obviously be the ones that last longer. So I think there is clearly some consolidation coming because there are too many of these companies. And Matt Maloney, the CEO of Grubhub, said too many promiscuous diners. Yeah, this was, isn't a surprise. I was surprised by the Uber move up, too, because you take one giant money-losing company with a smaller money losing company and somehow you're going to get a profit there i, I mean but well, to it, your point it makes sense if you can stop beating each other's that's brains. right exactly. that's right but that's a big assumption that we have yet to see for instance with lyft and uber right. or all these companies that said okay we're, we're close to that point but we haven't really seen it yet but they are the grubhub is the biggest in, a, in an industry that just economically hasn't made sense yet I mean, to me, it's just it makes sense for them to be acquired or try to buy somebody else if they could. I mean, Grubhub's grown single digits over the last year. DoorDash, Who else could buy them, though? Who, well, DoorDash is going 100 percent. So they have yeah. someone that's really on their heels, maybe even overtaking them coming up. Uh, maybe Uber. <laughs> they're going to get SoftBank in here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they buy anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're losing money on one of those. All right, guys, thank you very much. Yeah. Good to see all three of you. we got Robert, Kate, and Frank. And folks, former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn saying he did not escape justice. He says he fled injustice at his first public appearance since escaping Japan. What else Ghosn had to say is coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn speaking for more than two hours at a news conference in Lebanon today. These were his first public appearance and first comments since his escape from Japan last week. Philip O joins us right now with more on what he had to say. And Phil, good luck trying to cap that into a quick hit. (laughs) Okay, start the stopwatch now. (laughs) Look, he came out firing. We knew he would. And right off the bat, he made it clear he believes that he has to do this in order to clear his name. I want justice because justice is the only way I'm going to establish my reputation and the only way what I've done during my life is going to be recognized to its value. And if I don't get it in Japan, I'm going to get it somewhere else. Oh, and he plans to keep on talking, including more next week is what he is saying. He blamed Nissan executives for setting him up today. He showed documents that basically, he says, shows compensation was approved by the Nissan board. And he says he is willing to stand trial if he can get a fair trial. You can expect me in the next weeks to take some initiative to tell you how I'm going to clear my name, what kind of forum I'm going to be used to make sure that all the evidence are going to come to the table and that everything I've done be restored. Watching his press conference very intently, a lot of people in Japan, including investigators earlier today, the police raided the uh, office of Carlos Gones lawyer in Tokyo. The prosecutors, after the press conference, said that Carlos Ghosn failed to justify his acts, those acts meaning escaping, being on the lam, jumping mail, whatever you want to call it, Becky. Carlos Ghosn did not go into detail about that today. Not a surprise. We knew going in that he would not talk about who helped him, how he put this plan together, because that is one of the primary questions. Really, it is the primary question that people have right now. 
Phil, what was the most surprising thing to you? I mean, if we've been we've been following the story pretty closely, so much right. of it did not surprise me. But there were some new details there as well. Well, I thought the most interesting thing is he said, look, they offered they approved my compensation, mm-hmm. of which he is accused of not reporting it. He goes, I never received it. So they're <laughs> accusing me of something and, and like I'm stealing money here, but I did not receive this compensation. That was one aspect that, that I think people were a little bit uh, surprised to hear about. The other thing that came up is he talked about, before his arrest, conversations he had with Fiat Chrysler. Right. About Fiat Chrysler joining Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi. But obviously, he was detained. Once, once that happened, those talks were off the board. Right. Plus, he said they spent $200 million trying to smear him for taking what they were saying was $14 million that he said he never got. That's yes. A lot, a lot yes. to look and we really. And, and, Becky, we haven't really heard anything from Nissan. Don't be surprised if Nissan basically lets the Japanese authorities speak for them. Okay. Phil, thank you very much. For you more bet. on Gone's legal predicament, I'm joined right now by Danny Savalos. He is co-founder and attorney for Savalos and Wong and a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. And, Danny, thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. So now what? Now what? <laughs> what happens? Well, Interpol has submitted what's called a red notice. It's not a warrant. It's just a notice to a country that you have somebody who is a fugitive from justice, either a fugitive or even an escaped prisoner. Now, Carlos uh, Gone has not been tried yet. He's not under a sentence. He is just a fugitive awaiting trial. And so Lebanon has some tough choices to make in the coming weeks and months about what to do with this person, this fugitive, in their borders. You don't think Lebanon is actually going to do anything. There's no extradition treaty with Japan, and they've already seemed to be saying that they are standing by him. In fact, Carlos Ghosn said today, as part of his entire situation, he was naming names from Japanese companies, from people he thought very uh, personally sold him out. Uh, He didn't name anyone in government because he didn't want to put the Lebanese government in a more uncomfortable position than he's already put them in. That's exactly right. Uh, Ghosn's view of this case, and this was confirmed today, is that this was an internal investigation over at Nissan that was then handed off to authorities. It's basically a Nissan internal squabble that was pushed off and law enforcement was brought in to make that a legal criminal problem for Ghosn. That's the way he's viewed this case from the outset. And the argument about his compensation is that Japanese, uh, there's a Japanese rule that says that limits the compensation of an executive and requires it to be disclosed. The argument there is that he was getting this deferred package, this deferred compensation, totally normal here in the States. Mm-hmm. But in Japan, a lot more rules about disclosure. He says, these were just negotiations. They were not an actual deal for me to get this deferred compensation. You know, he, he was able to make his point very effectively today in terms of saying, look, if you are brought charges, if prosecutor brings charges against you, there's a 99.4% conviction rate. That seems crazy. His point was it's probably even higher for foreigners. There is no way to get a fair trial, he thinks, there. His his comments and his predicament have brought a lot of light into the justice system in Japan. Are there changes underway there or forget it? This is the way the Japanese do it. Not only are there changes, there have been changes over the past decades and even the past century. But the reality is Japan still has a 99 percent, over 99 percent conviction rate. Some of that can be explained by the fact that they don't have plea bargaining for the most part. So a prosecutor, when they take a case on, they better be sure they can win. It's a higher conviction rate than you have in Russia. 
Well, wait a second. <laughs> Here in the United States, in federal court, where I practice frequently, yeah. there's an over 90% conviction rate, and more yeah. particularly so with white-collar crimes like this. That's ex- exactly what this is. Now, Japan, So you don't think there's anything fishy with the 99.4% conviction rate? Oh, I'm not saying that at all. As a criminal defense attorney, I'm not particularly fond of our 90-plus percent rate here in the United States. But a 99.9% conviction rate, that extra 10% is a significant difference. It means you have virtually 0.0 chance uh, of escaping conviction in Japan. So that is definitely something to be concerned with. They only shifted to the adversarial system in the last century or so. This is a very, uh, an ever-changing system with a lot of tradition and focus on uh, prosecutors working hand-in-hand with judges and criminal defense attorneys paying, playing a very reduced role. In fact, they often don't appear at interrogations. Uh, well, a that, Carlos Jones said that happened. He was interrogated for a long time without any of his lawyers present. Exactly right. And they can be held for 23 days. I mean, these are the kinds of protections that we have here in the United States where that would never happen. So while you know, no, we, don't, we have a similar conviction rate in the sense that 90% is pretty darn high, uh, 99.9% and some of the other absence of safeguards procedurally make Japan somewhere that really could improve their system. Danny, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Danny Savalas. Still ahead, the streaming landscape is more crowded than ever, and there's about to be another player entering the fray. Former DreamWorks CEO Jeffrey Katzenberg and former HP Enterprise CEO Meg Whitman will join us to discuss their latest venture. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The field of streaming services is already a crowded one, and there is another player that's set to hit the scene in April. Quibi, which is short for Quick Bites, aims to make big stories into small episodes and only for mobile devices. Julia Borston is at the Consumer Electronics Show, and she's joined in a first on CNBC by the founder of Quibi, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and CEO Meg Whitman. Julia. Thanks so much, Becky and Jeffrey Katzenberg, Meg Whitman. Thank you so much for joining us fresh off the stage where you really gave us a look at Quibi for the very first time. You announced this initiative, this new company, two years ago almost, March 2018. And since then, the streaming landscape has changed so dramatically. Just in November, we had the launch of Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus, both of which people are definitely watching on their mobile devices. How do you think about competing in this newly crowded landscape? Well, the reason that we're at CES is there's a long history in Hollywood of technology creating new ways for storytellers to tell their stories. I mean, think about it, the moving picture technology. um, Before that, it was just live theater. And then that created a whole industry. Then television was an entirely new technology, and the storytelling community created new stories. So what we announced today at CES is a new technology uh, platform that is designed to make viewing on your phone a, a completely a new, unique experience. And we have been embraced by the creators in Hollywood, and we're super excited. And we showed some clips of our you know, first shows there today that people saw for the very first time. And it's really differentiated and breakthrough. Differentiated in that the format, really, and we're showing some of the clips where the shot changes when you ter- change it from horizontal to, to vertical. Um, but people are already watching a lot of video on their mobile devices. And a lot of new ad-supported services are getting traction. We're going to have an ad-supported Peacock version launch soon. Do you feel pressure to launch a free ad-supported version just as Peacock, 
which is also launching in April, is going to have a free ad-supported version. I think this is <clears throat> really is apples and oranges here. You know, every all of these things that have happened up till now are battling for the TV set. And actually, less than 10% of Netflix viewing is on a telephone. So this isn't where people are watching all of this amazing new video today and the success that Disney is having and Apple is having. It's fantastic. It's actually not what we're doing. What we're doing is creating with this amazing new technology in the hands of storytellers a new form of storytelling on a device, in a mobile device, in a quality way that people have not seen before. And it is the combination of these clips that you're watching right now, which were shot by some of the <clears throat> best filmmakers in Hollywood, and telling stories in a way that's never happened before. So $5 a month with ads, $8 a month uh, without ads, and this is going to be launching uh, in April. April and I guess the question is, you may not be competing with Netflix or Disney+, Plus. Um, because people may be watching those more on their TV screens, but you are competing for the amount of money people spend on entertainment, and you are competing for people's time. So how do you think uh, about approaching that competitive landscape, whether you're competing with Instagram or people going out to the movies? Well, I think it's interesting. We uh, certainly are competing for entertainment dollars. There's no question about that, and we have to prove that we've got something special. But our use case is different than the big streamers. Our use case, we believe, is 7 in the morning till 7 at night when you're on the go. You're commuting. You're waiting at a doctor's office. You're waiting for friends to join you for lunch. You're you know, waiting for a meeting to begin. And in that case, we today, consumers are watching nearly 80 minutes of video today on their phone, up from 6 minutes in 2012. And we think that only gets bigger because of 5G and because what we're doing. So we think we're growing a whole new category. Maybe we'll take a little share from what people are doing on their phones during the day. But actually, I think we're creating an entirely new category of entertainment for mobile. Disney Plus announced 10 million signups in its first day. I know you're partnered with T-Mobile for your launch. How many signups do you expect in the first month, in the first year? So, listen, we are expecting quite a different ramp because we are an unknown brand. People don't know what Quibi is. It's a different use case. Disney was a hundred-year-old brand that everyone knew. And, you know, it's interesting being a newcomer to Hollywood. Everyone's focused on the movie launch, you know, the first weekend. I'm focused on building a long-term uh, growth vehicle that is a new consumer service. So we think our track record, our you know, subscriber acquisition will be more gradual and we'll measure our success at the end of year one. And do you expect to do more partnerships to be bundled into other services similar to what you're doing with T-Mobile? Well, where we're going to start, of course, is T-Mobile, and we think they are a perfect fit, as Mike Seifert said on stage today, they are a perfect fit for Quibi, and, and he thinks we're a perfect fit for T-Mobile. So, and then we'll be doing our own digital advertising on the four major um, you know, social network platforms. We're doing television advertising, out-of-home advertising, and, of course, PR and communications. And social is going to be so important for us. And our stars, of course, have very big social followings. Just a quick final question, because we're out of time. You have a lot of big partners. You're part of with Google in the back and distribution. Have you discussed selling to any of these big media and tech partners? <laughs> we no. haven't even launched yet, Julia. No. I, well, mean, what, I think what builders. we'd like to do, we'd we're like builders, to build. We're operators. We, you know, we're entrepreneurs. You know, we didn't build to sell. We built it for success. Well, certainly a lot of exciting things happening in the space, both in terms of consolidation and in terms of streaming um, applications launching. Meg Whitman, Jeffrey Katzenberg, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to checking out the app when it launches on April 6th. Thanks so much, guys. Back over to you. Julia, thank you very much. All right, retailers go high tech. We've got a look at Walmart's new Alphabot. It's helping to make the company deliver groceries to you faster. The exchange will be right back.
Welcome back, everybody. More proof that the grocery wars are going high tech. Walmart's been testing a platform that's named Alphabot at one of its super centers in Salem, New Hampshire, since last year. The fulfillment system looks like a mini warehouse. It uses autonomous carts to try and retrieve shelf food, refrigerated items, and frozen goods that consumers order online. Once the Alphabot has requested items and has them in hand, the system then sends the cart to a designated workstation where an employee checks the order for accuracy. The Alphabot cuts the time compared to the traditional picking done by humans. Walmart says its employees will still continue to pick fresh produce by hand, but you see what's coming. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.